With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 106 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is quite possibly the finest actress of her generation, Natalie Portman. The 35-year-old Israeli-American has been a star since she was just 12 and made her big-screen debut in Leon the Professional. Over the decades since, she has established herself as one of the most talented, committed, and respected practitioners of her profession, in films ranging from the second Star Wars trilogy to the romantic dramedy Garden State, to the drama Closer, to the action flick V for Vendetta, to the dramatic thriller for which she won the Best Actress Oscar six years ago, Black Swan. Her latest performance, as Jackie Kennedy in Pablo Lorraine's Jackie, which focuses on the days before and after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, may be Portman's best yet and could bring her a second Best Actress Oscar. Over the course of our conversation, we discuss a wide range of topics. Among them, how a fateful encounter at a pizzeria sparked the beginning of her acting career, why she was able to avoid the pitfalls of child stardom when so many others were not, what she learned from her late mentor, Mike Nichols, how she began to shed her good girl image after graduating from Harvard, why her Israeli and Jewish heritage are so important to her, and how she conquered brutally demanding parts in Black Swan and Jackie, the former directed and the latter produced by her friend Darren Aronofsky. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. So thank you very much for doing this. My pleasure. To begin with, we always just have sort of the stock question. Where were you born and raised? What do your folks do for a living? So I was born in Jerusalem, and then I was raised first in Israel, then Maryland, then Connecticut, and then Long Island, New York. I want to ask you about those moves and how you think they may have sort of shaped you at all. I actually am from Woodbridge, Connecticut, one of the places where I believe you went yeah. to Ezra Academy. So yeah, exactly. just what, what does that do to a kid when you're moving around that much? It's funny because I actually have, I have a little bit of a, a theory that one of my advisors in psychology in college actually sort of suggested to me 
which I think is accurate. She kept saying that she kept reading a lot about how actors moved around a lot. A lot of them were like army brats and how that makes so much sense because obviously when you move to a new place as a kid, you have to learn how to adapt quickly. You need to assess a social situation quickly and understand how you fit in and then play the role that's needed in that group. So I'm sure it had a big, big impact. Interesting. So were you a big consumer of movies or TV or theater as a kid or... I definitely went to a lot of theater as a kid and really loved it. My parents were really, my parents are not in entertainment at all. My mom is a fine artist. She she paints and draws and my dad is a fertility doctor. Mm-hmm. But they they love theater and we used to like stand in the half price tickets line on weekends and go see something every weekend and that totally formed my obsession with drama and yeah. drama stories. There's been a lot of things sort of, I've, I've tried to go back and read it as far back as I can, the different profiles and interviews and oh, things. And I think people have <laughs> probably screwed up some things and so I hope <laughs> yes. I haven't. But what happened? So you're 10 years old, you go into a pizzeria yeah. and what had, just that seems like that was the beginning. So maybe you can explain what unfolded. Yeah, it's it's kind of a funny thing because I, I was, yeah, just at a pizza place after dance class with my mom and there was a guy there having having pizza who who happened to work for Revlon and was they were doing some like children's perfume line or something and and he came up to me and my mom and said you know we were interested would she be interested in coming in and then he basically introduced us to agents and I was really interested in performing already and a lot of kids from where I lived were doing like commercials and stuff. Like it was pretty common on Long Island for kids to audition, you know, especially people I knew in like dance school, kids who were particularly interested in performing, you know, would would audition for Broadway plays mm-hmm. or commercials or soap operas or whatever. So I sort of understood that that was possible. He's looking at you for modeling. You're interested in acting. How was that gap bridged? Well, I remember going in to meet they sent set me up with like Ford kid models or something and of course I was excited as like a 10 year old girl it was super flattering and I remember I walked in and they like told me that my shoes were dirty and that I would never be allowed to like they were like if we send you out you're gonna have to like put on clean you know you can't wear dirty sneakers and I was so kind of repulsed by it that I was like, I don't want to do this. Right. I was like, I'm not interested in people judging me by what my appearance is, which, you know, it just made me so uncomfortable right away. So I said to them, I am interested in acting. And they had sort of affiliate, I guess there's like child agents that work with acting agents that worked with child modeling agents or whatever. And they sort of introduced me to them. And that was sort of, that was how I started. And prior to that, had you done acting even at just like a school level or something? Yeah, I was doing like school plays, camp plays, a lot of dance. But pretty quickly after now being represented, you were going out on real auditions and you you felt sort of right at home with, you know, or able to do it? I liked it and I was excited by it. And I was going, yeah, I was going out for like everything from commercials to TV movies to off-Broadway shows, you know. Was that the first the first thing that really panned out was that off-Broadway musical yes. that you did? 
I was an understudy in an off-Broadway musical called Ruthless. Yes. Yeah, that was the first job I got. And when along the line did I believe Natalie Hirschlag become Natalie Portman? That's the thing. I don't know That's where that came from. My okay. name's always get... been Natalie. <laughs> like someone decided that... that I changed my. You know what? It was probably an Israeli pronunciation of Natalie, right? That's that wouldn't no, because be? in no. Israel they call me Natalie they also, do. <laughs> and that's on my birth certificate. So I don't know who right. invented that. All right, let's but, put um, that to bed right yeah. now. Yeah, but I did change my last name, which happened when the professional was about to come out. There were still phone books, like people still had phone books, <laughs> and our name and address and phone number was in the phone book, and we were the only Hirschlags like in the state of New York. So I was like. I, I want to change this for privacy, yeah. so I took my grandmother's name. Gotcha. So you mentioned the professional, and I just have to ask, since this was in, in a way, I guess, the big break, how did that come about, and was the subject matter at all uh, concerned to you or your parents or whatever? I mean, it ended up, I think, I guess I'd be curious how you felt in the end, but it seemed like that might have been an issue. Yeah, I auditioned and then you know got called back several times and finally met with Luke Besson and had an audition with him, and then was offered the role. And I remember they gave me the script to read at home for like 24 hours or something. And I was so moved by it and was like, I remember reading it in my dad's office and like crying. And my parents, of course, were completely concerned about the material. It was violent. It was sexual. There was profanity. I was smoking in it. There was like, they were really concerned. And I was a very very headstrong kid and really fought with them and was basically like, you guys are going to ruin my life if you don't let me do this. (laughs) And it was a big, big conversation. They were really afraid. And my dad went into like deep negotiations with Luke about, you know, how many times I could curse in the film that when I smoked, it wasn't ever real smoking. It just looked like I was smoking and that in the story, I would have to quit by the end, so it would be a positive message. <laughs> and taking out the sexual content, I mean, there was like, in the original script, there was like shower scene, like there was like Jesus. even more, I mean, the film still is like sort of on the edge. So I think I was lucky for both things, that they both let me do it, but in this hyper-protected way. And I feel like that's sort of how they they were my entire career. Yeah. Like they kind of let me do what I wanted and they weren't involved. And that's another thing that's like very wrong that's put out that like my mother was my manager. Like she never, no, neither yeah. of my parents were ever involved financially at all in my career at all. And they were just very much parents. They were like protective parents who didn't want me exploited and they prevented it from happening i had a very very sheltered experience as a child actor so after that movie when suddenly you're now much more on the map you go back to school right and how was how's that it was hard i got i definitely got like a lot of flack from my fellow students who and it's hard to i don't know i don't really feel like i had much self-knowledge then so I, I it's hard to say how I was I just remember how they were and it was really really hard like they really I, I came home crying every day from school and that's when I moved to public school I was in a private school and because it was so small I felt that like if there were four kids that were really really being mean to me that I didn't have any friends right. 
was I just dreamt about public school that was like hundreds of kids and I was like okay someone's gonna be my friend there (laughs) was it a lot better it was so much better I mean it was really it was exactly that it was like there were just everyone had friends it was just different groups of people and I felt like it was a less it was definitely a less bullying environment yeah and in the meantime you I guess I, I suppose it was during vacations or other things that you continued to work and you were working pretty regularly in, in exciting stuff. I Just to remind listeners, you with Al Pacino and Heat, you're doing Woody Allen, everyone says I love you, Mars Attacks, which mm-hmm. is, this is all over the place. So I just mm-hmm. wonder for you at that point, what was driving you to keep doing this, Even, especially when it was causing you grief in other areas of your life? Well, I loved it and it gave me a whole different experience of the world I mean you get to travel you get to meet really interesting people and you get to have these emotional experiences acting um, and I, I absolutely loved it and with my move to a new school it didn't affect my life poorly I, I was able to have this sort of double life where I could have a great school experience and great friends and interesting academics and and then go and have this really incredible artistic experience can you diagnose as someone who's come through child stardom why so many other people don't can you can you figure out what it is that makes it so rough on a lot of people yeah I mean I have remarkable parents I have parents who I mean I'm 35 now and I've never seen disappointing behavior from them I see them they're human Mm -hmm. they're not perfect but they are always doing the right thing they're always being good human beings Mm -hmm. and I think that's rare in life like that is just the biggest blessing in in the world and yeah I think with any any little stumble (laughs) on either of their parts I would have been a mess you know because it's I think you you know you you have to really know who you are and that only comes from from your family being really really strong I wonder if we can just touch on a couple of sort of specific challenges it looks like you gave yourself along the way one of them the first I guess in a way may have been Dyer Van Frank where you're going to Broadway and this is the first time as an actor I think I guess you'd done that sort of understudying of of the off-Broadway musical but now you're every night for months doing Mm -hmm. something that's tough was that a major formative experience for you yeah that was maybe the craziest work thing I've ever done because I was doing I did eight shows a week for nine months while I was a junior in high school like I went to full-time school I missed half days on Wednesdays because we had matinees but I otherwise was fully in school and I took my SATs that year I did all my AP tests I mean I was doing like it was like the hardest year of high school plus the craziest schedule but it was it was amazing, and I don't know. I guess when you're 16, also, it's like if you're ever going to do something that intense, right. is when you're 16. But it does make you sort of feel like you can take on any challenge. Yeah, and then I guess the other thing, which I believe started just before you went off to college, which we can come to. But I mean, Star Wars obviously seems like it would be bigger than anything you'd been a part of up to that point. Maybe that anyone had been a part of up to that point, and very different sort of acting than you'd had to do with, I guess, blue screen and all that. So how did it come about? What did you make of it all? That was really, really difficult also because I was 16 in the first one. So it was actually, I guess it was right after I did Anne Frank. It was the 
summer after and it was the summer before my senior year does that make sense that sounds right to me yeah i'm looking at the chronology i think and yeah i was 16 and it was it was new for everyone i mean it was the first big film shot digitally which made it completely different to the monitors were exactly how you would see it on screen which is wild it was almost entirely blue screen, so you're acting in a vacuum, and it's just a whole new world. Yeah, it was really, it was really challenging. I found it really difficult, and I still find blue screen acting really difficult. Yeah, it's really something I admire a lot when I see great acting with blue screen stuff. I'm, I'm always like that. That person's the <laughs> most talented because it's really hard. Yeah. So the year after that with the exception of, I guess, finishing your commitment to the Star Wars movies, you say, I'm taking my four years off to go and go off to college. You'd worked hard in high school. You're now off to Harvard. Was that a tough call? And in retrospect, was do you have any doubt that it was the right call for you to go and do that? You know, it didn't feel like such a decision, you know. First of all, I'd only been making, like, one movie a year, and usually a small part, you know, something that would take a few weeks to shoot, or doing a film in the summer, like doing anywhere but here or where the heart is or Star Wars. And I was still doing sort of the same thing because I worked in the summers and I did other things too. Um, During college, I did, you know, the play in Central Park, the Seagull, and I did Garden State and the short film in Paris, I Love You. So it didn't feel like such a compromise. And also it wasn't like there were like, thousands of movies coming my way that I had to say no to. It wasn't really that that hard to just only work in the summers, you know. But it is an unusual thing in the way like I don't I don't know too many other people who go off to college as a movie star. And so I wonder for you was were you able to have a somewhat somewhat normal experience or yeah? Oh totally normal experience because I remember Facebook was invented when I was a senior, like at the school (laughs) by a freshman. I mean, not I didn't know him. Yeah, I didn't know him then at all. But, um, you know, the Internet didn't really exist. And life was it was much easier to sort of have private existence before all that. So I was very lucky with like the timing of all of that. I mean, I find it really impressive now when people go because to know that you're going to have people taking pictures of you in class and on campus and writing about anything you do. I mean, I got to go like really be a normal college student yeah. and like do everything that normal college students do. Yeah, I um, know you really you know. Uh, impressed a lot of people, including Al Dershowitz, who said that at that time you were also, I know your major, I think, was psychology, but you were, were you seriously thinking, maybe you still are, that at some point he's saying that he thought, he got the sense from you that at some point you would want to actually practice that? I don't think that I ever thought about practicing psychology. I I did think about maybe pursuing more academic life. I was still at the time of my life when I think I hadn't fully accepted that I was an actress and mm-hmm. that I, this is what I loved. And I still had some sort of like, I think coming from a very academic family like you know my grandfather's a professor and had like four PhDs <laughs> and like my dad was this very academic doctor like he publishes 
dozens of papers and you know just having this background that I felt like I was I was supposed to be doing something more serious and more academic and even when I was like 25 my dad pulled me aside and was like okay now I think it's time for you to go to graduate school and how did that conversation go yeah, I was, I was a little <laughs> taken aback. I was like, but it was good because it kind of forced me to declare myself yeah. and be like, this is what I love. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm interested in. I find meaning in it and I find joy in it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want. Mm-hmm. But it took me a while. Like, I feel like a late bloomer because it took a long time to get there. It seems like in, you said there was a period when you weren't sure still what whether this was what you wanted to do. Is it correct that maybe the thing that helped to solidify that was the seagull where you're doing this in Central Park, I think, right? And it seems like Mike Nichols ended up becoming a very important person in your life. You're with Meryl Streep and Philip Seymour Hoffman. If you're ever going to be prone to falling in love with acting, that seems like the circumstance where it could happen. It was incredible. I don't think I needed to fall in love with it. I think I was already in love with it. It was just I couldn't like admit it to myself because I didn't think that's what I was supposed to be doing. And I'm also grateful for that because I think that that my parents were pushing that side so much because I think the fact that they never overemphasized acting or related to it as something like important or cool, that it gave me a little bit of perspective that I never, I wasn't head swollen over being successful at this that so many people think of as this like great height of achievement that it was always a little bit like, Okay, but it's not really <laughs> not that, that intellectual right, or right. that, you know, it's not that impressive, right. which kind of kept me grounded right. in a way, even though they never made me like feel bad about it. They were complimentary, but it helped give a little bit of groundedness. But yes, Mike Nichols was an incredible influence on me both professionally and personally from the time I met him until, you know, for the rest of my life, because even though he's gone now, I still hear his voice in my ear mm-hmm. all the time. So there was this period then, I guess, you know, pretty shortly after that, where a lot of people were, at least the way it was being phrased, the coverage was shedding the good girl image or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that could probably get annoying for anybody to read. But I mean, was there a concerted or a conscious effort when there were within a few short years, you're playing a stripper for Mike Nichols in Closer. Mm-hmm. You're you know, doing sort of the very funny rap thing on SNL, <laughs> V for Vendetta. This is different than stuff we'd seen you do before. Was that a decision? No, it wasn't a decision. It was just interesting opportunities of, yeah. of good characters. to, And also I think maybe, maybe it seems like that too because obviously being an adult and and being on my own and you know at that point I was making decisions for myself and not consulting my parents that it wasn't obviously a concerted effort to stay away from that stuff so maybe sort of sure in that direction and then I think in that aftermath of that of people first starting to I guess look at you as an adult now there were a lot of I think interesting artsy things the other bowling girl my blueberry nights but obviously it seems like the one that was the game changer is we're, we're looking at the poster here mm-hmm. black swan and i just what i remember from that period and covering it was that darren was saying he had reached out to you like a decade before even that right so what what was his original outreach and why did it take so long it's a good question i don't know why it took so long we we started talking about it I think while I was in college, like early college, like I feel like 18 or 19. And I guess it was just that thing of like, 
to get a script and to have him be in the place where he was ready to do it and to get the financing and all of that. It just, I guess it just took that long, but I don't, I don't really know. Is it good that it did? Because I mean, you'd, were you a different actress than you would have been if you'd had to do it when he first came to you? Oh, completely. Yeah. Completely. It was very lucky it happened exactly when it happened because I think physically I was sort of like at the end of where I could have done that and then emotionally I was like at the beginning of where I could have done that (laughs) so it was yeah it was lucky not to relive uh, stuff that may you may want to not even think about but just Mm -hmm. can you remind people how much work went into that I mean I was amazed mm-hmm. to re-, re in revisiting this I, I had kind of forgotten the extent of the preparation that had to go into to making you know the fact that you could even be made with preparation to look that good is is uh, unbelievable but what was the preparation it was a lot I started a year ahead of time doing the ballet training and I did have a double for you know the stuff that you would never be able to (laughs) learn in a year. Of course, you can't become an actual ballerina in a year. But we got to the point that I could do the, the, I could do sort of the simpler stuff on point. And I could do, you know, all the close-ups that, and and Benjamin, who's now my husband, of course, choreographed specifically so that it was a lot of like upper body stuff that they could do close-up shots that I could do everything it was it was a lot it was it was really fun though and the time I spent with the woman who trained me Mary Helen Bowers was great too because she just told me stories all day long which was amazing for a year to hear stories about being in a ballet company all day long and in the course when you're putting that much of your heart and soul and time into doing something I'm sure you've got to really hope it's it pans out into a nice movie did you get the sense all along that it was coming together overall I mean you know that what you're doing but did you get the sense that it was a, a good movie I always go into every project hoping it is and going into it because I think it could be but I've had so many experiences where something that feels amazing while you're making it doesn't get a reaction that you expect or or that you want or that something you don't feel is going great gets a great reaction so the lack of correlation has kind of I I think on that made me not really have any expectations but really just it was a pleasant surprise and I loved shooting it and had such an incredible and fulfilling experience and that's sort of what you go for because the rest you can't control but it is amazing that what on the surface you know people want to label probably an art house movie became a financial banana like made a fortune right yeah and obviously the reviews were great and then just out of curiosity and based on something i read this is why i'm asking what does the oscar mean to you when you've been doing this at that point for what like 20 years years, yeah yeah i mean is it was it something special or is it something that let me just leave it at that was it something yeah no it's definitely something special and it's incredibly flattering and moving to be recognized in that way but also when you live for 20 years without it, you're also, it's not your be all end all. The be all end all is the work that you're able to do. And one of the greatest things about the Oscar too is the opportunities it affords you for other things, the different kind of way people look at you. The thing that I love is is getting to make films mm-hmm. and play characters and anything that allows me to do that more is is really lucky. 
and so after that happened these last few years you've gotten married started your family also directed for the first time and mm-hmm. I just wonder was that something that you'd always wanted to do or was it because this story might only get made if you did it what were the circumstances around that yeah I've always wanted to direct and then this was when I read Amos Oz's A Tale of Love and Darkness I really saw a film in my head for the first time and became completely obsessed with it and knew that that was what I wanted to make and then had the great opportunity of making the film in Israel in Hebrew and it was one of the the great experiences of my life and you have definitely gotten the sense that and I think you said it's where you were born but Israel is very special to you it's somewhere where you end up spending a lot of time or you know have very strong feelings about Yeah, I I do spend a great deal of time there. I have a lot of friends and family I care about deeply there. And I think it's just occupied my imagination for a long time because I heard stories about it growing up, living here, thinking about there, and had this imagination of it. And then, then confronting it as an adult and seeing what it really is and where the gaps are with the stories I heard and, you know, my conflicting feelings about various aspects of of it it's it's like family you know it's some a thing you you love more than anything in the world and also feel critical of more than anything of the world so for me it's just this it makes sense for me to make stories there yeah. because it has all of that tension in it for me the only downside of being such a proudly outspoken Jewish actress with associations with Israel is I think you get every probably every script that has any remote connection to that subject yes. matter, right? <laughs> well, more even Holocaust right? than Israel. Like, I definitely get a lot of, a lot of Holocaust Yes. Well, so coming to the recent past with Jackie, how did you first hear about it? And I don't believe, maybe I'm wrong, but had you played a real person, a historical figure before? So Jackie was another long gestation from Darren Aronofsky. (laughs) So Darren had originally acquired the screenplay by Noah Oppenheim like five or six years ago that he was going to direct with another actress. And then he decided not to direct it, just to produce it. And at that point, he called me and said, would you want to do this? And I read it and I was very moved by the script, but I felt that, you know, in the wrong hands, it could be taken, I guess, more conventional way or a more... You know, it's and it's also just scary in general playing a figure that is so well known, mm-hmm. which I had played real life characters before with Anne Frank on stage sure, right. and with Anne Boleyn, but they're not people that anyone knew how they talked. Right. You know, with stage, you have a lot more flexibility in terms of how you look. And then with Anne Boleyn, I mean, no one really <laughs> knows much about what she was really like so there's this was definitely a completely different challenge and that scared me so much and then when Darren came to me with this idea of Pablo Lorraine directing it and had me watch his films because I was unfamiliar with them Mm -hmm. and then meet him in person I I was completely convinced that this would be a worthwhile adventure I mean I still thought it was a little crazy but (laughs) (laughs) now did it give you any pause that he had not made an English language film before, that he had not made a film with a female protagonist before, that it would just be a very, and this is a very American figure and story, and we're going to have a Chilean filmmaker, as great as he may be, telling it. Were any of those things concerning to you? 
They weren't because, first of all, I think the fact that he hadn't made an English language movie talking to him, his English was so sophisticated that that never really seemed like it was a problem. You know, I felt that he could communicate anything he needed to communicate. And then in terms of the fact that he hadn't made a female protagonist before didn't bother me because I don't really consider that a difference Mm -hmm. personally. I feel like you make movies about human beings and I don't expect people to treat male and female characters differently. Although when they do, I get disappointed Mm -hmm. and upset, but I don't go into things expecting that. And then lastly, about him not being American, I thought it was actually helpful because he didn't have all that baggage of the Kennedys are icons who need to be revered and put on a pedestal, and he was able to approach them as human beings. You and Darren had obviously developed this very special report with Lex Swan, and then I guess kept in touch. How involved was he in this one? Was he able to, without stepping on Pablo's toes, able to work with you still closely? Darren was very involved in sort of helping shape the movie with all the right players. He helped get a lot of the actors in. Apparently, he was like recruiting at school because he's um, he's a parent at the oh, same right. school with Peter Sarsgaard and Billy Crudup <laughs> and apparently recruited them like at school pickup. So he was very helpful in kind of putting all these pieces together that helped make the movie full of quality artists. But he didn't come to set at all ever. And he didn't, you know, discuss character with me. It was Pablo's movie, 100 mm-hmm. percent. And for you, when you were, you have your script, but now you've got to deal with some of those other things that you said were a little daunting. What were the solutions to at least going in with a little more confidence? What were the things you were able to do to prepare? Well, that was actually something that Mike Nichols told me was he was like, you do everything you can before you learn everything and then you forget about it when you get on set, that you absorb it in a way where you don't have to think about it. And so I did that. I like overdosed on on material. I read everything I could find. I watched the White House tour mm-hmm. obsessively with my dialect coach, Tanya Blumstein, who was amazing. And we worked a lot on accent and voice. I listened to the Schlesinger tapes also, which were really helpful in sort of comparing the public voice versus the private voice. Yeah, and just took it all in mm-hmm. and then got to set and it was all inside. Another thing I noticed that I, I was wondering watching the movie if it might have been kind of daunting is that there it seems like there's a lot of the movie where you're kind of by yourself with your thoughts in often in very big rooms. Is it more comfortable when you are in a scene with another actor than when you're just sort of thrown out there and, it's, and you've got to carry the load yourself? Well, I never really feel alone when I'm shooting because you always have so many people on a movie <laughs> set. And so... I love working with other actors and then if I'm not with other actors then I relate to even when I'm with other actors I relate to the camera operator as a partner in the scene with me and the director too and when you have a director and a camera operator who are emotionally invested in what you're doing you're communicating with them the whole time and so it's still sort of the same thing. All that being said, was there one scene that really maybe you were least looking forward to doing because it was it presented a clear challenge? The assassination was was really dreadful. <laughs> I was really I really didn't want to do it. 
I really didn't want that day to come. Of course, it can't even compare to the experience of someone actually having to live with that. But of course, recreating it was is not something you're really excited about. And then as an actor, it's very strange to have something that is so incredibly emotional and devastating and traumatic, but where you have very prescribed limits of how you can move physically and facially because it's captured in a very well-known film. There's a Pruda film. So you're like trying to capture emotional truth and your own emotional truth. But then you're like, okay, but she had to be sitting this direction for this part and then turn this way and then move that way. And she wasn't crying. She wasn't screaming. She wasn't like facially. It's very limited what you, so that was, I I found it really challenging on like a technical in a technical way. Yeah. I don't know if, if it's fully sunk in yet. I guess the movie's been screening now for a few months. When you look at this, if you are being completely honest and, and setting aside any humility, where does this performance sort of chart on the list of the most challenging that you've done and also the ones that, were, that you're proudest of? I mean, it seems like it's got to be up there. I don't know that I can do that. I don't really like rape my performances. I'm sorry. I I mean, I I loved the experience of making this. I had one of the most incredible creative experiences, if not the most incredible experience of my life. So I can I can say that. Sure. And then just I guess looking to the future as a final thing here. What is Handsome Charlie Films? I have to ask that first. <laughs> it's the production company I, I put together several years ago to try and develop my own um, projects, and I've actually kind of shut it down now. Have you? Yeah, I'm really interested in developing material still and, and also helping filmmakers that I believe in or friends that are making interesting projects. But I also have learned that I'm not, I'm not a producer, I don't have those skills. I have like connections that I can help people move their projects along, but I need to be working with a real qualified, great producer if I actually want to help a film. So the the things I've been fostering, I'm always, I always like do what I can to help it right. move forward and then put like a real producer on it. But rest in peace, handsome Charlie. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. So the so what is uh, as the final question? What is coming up for you? I, is I think there's another Malik, and then there's some other. Maybe yes. you can just for people that are going to come out of Jackie and say, "What can we see her in next?" Maybe you can fill that in. Yes, there's another Malik film that I made immediately after Night of Cups, like four years ago, <laughs> and I think that's coming out in the beginning part of next year. Mm-hmm. I think. I made a French film with Rebecca Slatovsky, who's an incredible yeah. young French filmmaker called Planetarium, that was is is being released in France this week, and it doesn't have distribution in the U.S. still. So, I don't know. I hope it'll come here in yeah. some. I'm sure it'll end up at some point on like Netflix or something yeah, like yeah. that. But hopefully in theaters too. That's a movie I'm I'm really proud of, and I made a film with Alex Garland last year called Annihilation that's really great and has an amazing cast of women, Jennifer Jason Lee and Gina Rodriguez, Tessa Thompson, Tuva Novotny. That's a really special film. So that'll be out at the end of next year. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks. (laughs) 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 